Ecclesiastes chapter 4 is where we're going to be, so turn there if you would. Last week we were in chapter 3 and then into chapter 4. And, um, and so uh, today, tonight, I want to go back to 4 and just highlight a few verses. There were verses that I used in context uh, to support a, a broader point last week. Uh, but I do want to kind of just uh, go back and look at this a little bit more if, we're, if we can tonight. So Ecclesiastes 4 verse 7, Solomon says, Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. And there is one alone and there is not a second. And that phrase is easy to, to read over. I've actually entitled the sermon that tonight. I, that's a little bit of a longer title. But that phrase, that when one is alone, and he says this, and it's, it's just poetic, but it stops and makes you think. Here's one alone, and he says, it's not just alone, he says, there's no second. There's, there's no one there with him. Like, he's alone by himself, and there's an emphasis on this idea. And then he goes on, he says, yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet is there no end of all his labor? Neither is his eye satisfied with riches, neither saith he, for whom do I labor, and rave my soul of good. He says, this is also vanity. Hey, it is a sore travail. Okay, now here's his prescription to, to, to this condition, to, to this problem. He says, two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him that is alone when he falleth. For he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord, it's not quickly broken. Let's pray tonight. Father, thank you for your word and just a great day in your house. Lord, thank you for the music and the, the heart behind it and the preparation that went into it. Lord, so that tonight we could, we could hear and participate and honor you. Uh, Lord, thank you for uh, time together as a church family today and already speaking to our hearts uh, this morning in such a clear, practical way. Uh, just some truths that are so defining, Lord, for our ministry here and for our lives and hearts. And Lord, once more, as we look at your word, I ask that you'd help us uh, to just apply our minds and our hearts for a few more minutes and listen attentively to you and what you might have for us. Um, and help us, Lord, in this area of investing in others and yielding ourselves to also being invested in. So bless the few moments we share that remain this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When I was in college, uh, Dave Hardy was one of my very first instructors. And for those many of you would know, and maybe some of our newer people, he was the former pastor right here at Eastland Baptist Church. And so he would travel down one, sometimes two days a week. Uh, to Oklahoma City, and he would teach some classes. And, and so my first year in Bible college, I had, was a transfer student in. I'd been at a, another college for a couple of years. And so I transferred in as an upperclassman, and so I was taking some upperclassman classes, and, and, and Dave Hardy was one of the instructors. That's my first introduction to him. And so in that class, uh, he would talk about Eastland Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I, you know, I'd never been here before, but I hear all these stories about uh, this place and this church and the city of Tulsa. And so in the theme of rugged Christianity, of which we heard about last week, um, that would, would be very true for Dave Hardy in his, in his way of thinking. And so he would tell the preacher boy something like this. Um, there's a Tulsa run coming up and it's nine miles long. And you're a sissy and you're no man of God if you can't run it. And that was, you know, some, that's paraphrased, but it's pretty close to about what he would say. And so a gr group of us, uh, we took him up on that. 
And so we decided we'd come down to Tulsa, and there was a, a friend that I had, his name was Jonathan Hatfield, and his parents lived here in Tulsa, so we came down, and we're like, well, sure, we'll run this nine-mile race. And we're young and full of vigor and energy, and so we stayed up almost all night. I think we may have slept two hours the night before. We were off campus and having a big time. And we ate bellies full of spaghetti and just hung out, and the next morning, we, we slept in a little too late, so we had no breakfast, and we got off to a quick start. We get out there to this Tulsa run. Well, I start running, and I didn't feel good when I started. And I remember getting about five miles into this race. You know, you can do a couple miles when you're young without training and without any other healthy foods or rest. But nine miles is a lot farther. And I remember I got lost and alone in a sea of people. We got separated from each other and I started to hurt. And here I was, and I was with people, but I was very much alone. And, and I was lost in the sea of people, and I began to think thoughts in my head, like, this is stupid. <laughs> what am I doing? I haven't prepared for this. I haven't trained for this. My side hurts. I'm tired. I don't, I'm not, you know, I don't have proper shoes on. And, and I'm on the verge of quitting and thinking, no one's even going to know that I quit. And about that time, when I am just this close to quitting, a voice comes up behind me, and it's this high-pitched, squeaky voice. And for many of you, you would know that voice, and it was that of Tim Larkley. <laughs> and so here is this massive humanity and Tim didn't even come with us that day. I think he was working here at the church at the time as an intern. And Tim says to me, come on, Daniel, you can do it. And he is just right. You know, I'd started so far ahead of Tim. And because he was plodding and he was consistent and he had trained and was disciplined, he came up beside me. And together for the next four miles, we ran, him almost dragging me. But we finished that race together. And there's a point that is so poignant in my mind from that day and that memory in my heart. And it is simply this, alone, I would have quit. Like, there's no question in my mind. It was running through my mind. And, and I, honestly, tonight, it's a little funny telling a story about running because uh, visiting tonight is Paul Corlew over here. And that's uh, Annie Howard and Julie Gardner's brother. And he runs, you know, 100 miles at a time. And so here I am telling this story about, you know, nine miles. But, um, but in my heart, and, and where I was, I was done. But there is something about having a friend beside you that changes everything. It, it, it changes life. It changes your perspective. It, it literally changes what you are physically, psychologically, and spiritually capable of doing. Being alone is an awful way to live life. It's never a good place to be. In chapter 4, as we studied last week, we considered what Solomon considered some injustices in the world. He talked about wickedness and corruption in places of judgment, places that should be known for holding up justice. And he says there's corruption, there's wickedness there. He talked about people that are created in the image of God. And he, he just says, you know, they die. And when they die, they die just like an animal does. He talks about the fact that there are so many oppressed in the world. There are so many people that are disadvantaged and no one's there to comfort them. 
He talked about that many people are simply motivated by envy in life, and that is the reason that they succeed. Not because they're thoughtful or they're trying to do something on purpose, but they're just envious and they want more. And so they just get it. He talks about recognition for accomplishment. And then even if we accomplish something great, significant, it's only temporary. It passes so quickly. And Solomon encouraged his readers to recognize that though those things are true, there's a lot to life we don't see and there's a lot to life we don't know. And he says, God is sovereign. He's the judge and he knows things from the beginning of time to the end. And you don't get to be the judge's judge. And he says, and in his time, he's going to make everything, he uses this word, beautiful. He's going to make everything good and everything right. And the pains and the frustrations and the hurts you experience in life, one day, sung about tonight, God's going to reveal that to us. And there's, going to, there's a beauty to it. And he will make everything beautiful, but he's going to do it in his time. One of the other injustices that we read about tonight in these verses that Solomon observed was simply this injustice, that people are lonely. And that, and that has not changed. And we think about the loneliness that maybe you've experienced or are experiencing. You think about the loneliness of people across the globe, and I'm going to get to a few statistics in a minute. But people are lonely, and, and Solomon looks at this and says, this isn't right and it's not fair. There are some injustices we can do nothing about. But there are some that we can. And there are some things that we can do. Not always. This isn't, these aren't guarantees that you're never going to be lonely. That's not true. Jesus himself had moments of loneliness. But much of the time, we can navigate loneliness if we consider principles that Solomon highlights in these verses. Because he doesn't give a solution to all the injustices he lists. His solution is God knows. His solution is you just wait on his time. And that is the solution to many injustices. But to this one, he gives some specific instruction that are a help to us if we would pay attention to it. And so in verses 7 and 8, Solomon points out a sad tale of a solitary individual. And he says this of this man. As he considers the life of this man, and we don't know if he had someone specific in mind, proverbial, maybe it was himself, we don't know. But as he considers the life of this man, and he thinks about this specific individual, he says this phrase, he was alone and there was no second. No one beside him. No one with him. The man's not mentioned by name. We're told, though, he lives alone. He works alone. He thinks alone. We don't know if he had a wife or not. Maybe he did. But even if he did have one, she's not mentioned. And it is very possible to be in a marriage together in the same house and yet miles apart and alone. And so this is the condition of this man. We do know that he does not have an heir, no son, no brother to inherit his wealth. And this note we have to highlight tonight that he works for himself. He does not work for the blessing or the benefit of anyone else. His work is for him. It, it's not for the benefit of another person. He doesn't think about them. Other people aren't on his radar. His work, his mission, his thinking is self-focused. And so Solomon looks at this man's life and he observes what he seemed to see that there was no end to his work. 
This man works from, from the sun up. He works all the way to sundown. He puts in countless hours. And it didn't matter how many hours he worked. It was never enough hours. He was compulsive to earn more money with no purpose for the money. It was just accumulation of more. No matter what he gained, the man had no one with whom to share it. He was working hard. And because of his hard work and his investment in labor and his investment in his investments, he had no time for friends. He had no time for church. He had no time for family or for other people. And it's apparent from the story and the way that Solomon says it, that the man never took the time to stop and be reflective about life. And, and, and to think, like, what am I doing? And why am I doing it? He was making costly sacrifices to advance his career, to build up his bank account, and never considering whether or not what he was doing was worth it. Never counting the cost. And as an outside observer of this man's life, Solomon looked at the man's life and he essentially says to us in so many words, it's not worth it. Like this lifestyle and not living with purpose and not investing in others. He says, that's not worth it. The, the trade-off's not worth it. Sacrificing for this kind of end is worthless. The man's possessions and his bank account, it would never satisfy him. And with no one to share his stuff with, his life was going to end in unhappiness. There was no one to enjoy the fruit of his labor. And so what Solomon saw is a warning for all of us tonight. And it simply is this principle. Life is filled with vulnerabilities. And one of life's greatest, if not greatest, vulnerability is isolation. It is a, a, a significant detriment in our lives. Being alone is an awful way to live. In small doses, isolation is beneficial. I'm a person that needs margin. Um, isolation in small doses can clear our hearts. It clears our minds. But when isolation becomes a pattern to life, we can suffer and we do suffer for it. So much research has gone into loneliness and isolation, especially in recent years. And there are thoughts and ideas that go, go along these lines. We're, we're in a crowd, yes. We're in the sea of humanity, yes. We're at work, we're at church, we're, we're at home. Yes, all those things, there's people around us. But even in those environments, we are alone. We're more connected and yet we're further apart than we've ever been. We have more access to one another through digital platforms, but they hardly suffice for combating isolation. And the health risks of isolation are dramatic. And I, I've shared some of these statistics before, but these are just fresh. These are new. These are, are from 2021 20, uh, and 2023. Uh, these are the health risks of, of isolation. And heart, this is for, it's data from Harvard Medical School. And they say people without strong quality social relationships are at higher risk for depression and anxiety, elevated levels of stress and inflammation, which can adversely affect coronary arteries, gut function, insulin regulation, immune system, a wide range of diseases, including cardiovascular diseases and cancer, cognitive and functional decline, including dementia, decreased resistance to infection, delayed recovery from injury, surgery, illness, etc., premature death. They say isolation 
leads to 50% increased risk. And, and, and the list goes on and on and on in so much more detail than that. And the point is this, some of our health problems are related to our psychological well-being and the way that God's designed us and made us to not be alone. And, and this question is asked, why are more people lonely than they ever have been before? Because that's what, every, that's what all of these social scientists are coming up with. People are more lonely than at any point in the history of the world. And this was some data put together by AARP, and they researched this question, and they found this. They said some of the suspected factors for the rise in loneliness and social di uh, disconnect include that the number of adults living alone has doubled over the last 50 years. The number of single occupancy households worldwide is now greater than ever in recorded history. Reduction in marriage rates, smaller household sizes, and increased rates of childlessness Decreased in community involvement. This statistic was from the U.S. Department of Labor Bureau of Statistics. There's a decreased community involvement, which is reflected by falling rates of volunteerism. People don't want to serve. They don't want to be involved. They don't want to give to others. They, want to, they just want to be home and alone and at their own time. An increasing number of Americans reporting no religious affiliation. And a decrease, and they said this is, this is one of the more significant factors for all of these other problems, that there's a decreased need for face-to-face -face interactions. We don't need them as much anymore due to technology and social media. And, and, and again, not to pick low-hanging fruit here, but social media itself is an oxymoron. And, and, and speaking in terms of isolation, research says it doesn't lead to better relationships. It leads to more loneliness. The National Library of Medicine published an article, and this is a government website, in January 2023, this year, a few months ago. They said, this was the title of the article, Associations Between Social Media Use and Loneliness in a Cross-National Population, Do Motives for Social Media Use Matter? And it's a really long article. But the abstract and conclusion, let me just read a few highlights. They said, we aim to examine the association between social media use and loneliness two years after the COVID-19 pandemic outbreak. They said linear regressions examine time spent on social media and participants' characteristics on loneliness and interactions, interactions by motives for social media use. And, and here were the results. They said more time spent on social media was associated with more loneliness. Our findings suggest that people who use social media for the, main, the motive of maintaining their relationships feel lonelier than those who spend the same amount of time on social media for other reasons. Meaning you could use social media maybe for a business aspect or something else, but they're saying if you're relying on this or social aspect and functioning, they said it, it, it literally is counterproductive. While social media may facilitate social contact to a degree, they may not facilitate the type of contact sought by those who use social media primarily for this reason. Another article said how and why social media, this is the title, affects subjective well-being, multi-use and social comparisons as predictors of change across time. And this is the quote. Researchers found that people turn to social media more when they're feeling lonely. But surprisingly, people felt worse after spending time on social media. It didn't help them feel less isolated. It actually made them feel lonelier. The more student study participants compared themselves to others while using social media, the less happy they felt. I am not telling you what to do with social media. But to not, to listen to that, to read that, to study that for yourself, and to blow by it is a mistake. We are lonely people, and we're becoming more isolated and alone. And there is this big warning sign that God's Word is telling us, pay attention to this. 
Like, engage your brain here. Direct your life. We are increasingly alone, and the world shouts to us to not collaborate, but to live for self. And Solomon viewed the life of this lonely man. He states this simple solution. And it's so simple, we go, well, duh. And he simply says this, two are better than one. Well, yeah, that's true of dollars. (laughs) And it's true of people, too. The principle goes back to the beginning of time in Genesis 2 when the Lord looked at Adam and says, it's not good for a man to be what? Alone. Now that's true in marriage, but it's true outside of marriage too. And that's what Solomon is directing our attention toward. Because when there are two or more, there is what we call synergy. Synergy simply means the sum is greater than the total of the parts. So this idea, when Solomon says two are better than one, and he talks about threefold cord, that it's not easily broken. And people say that if you take two strands, it's this strong, but you add a third one in, it's 50% stronger. You would think you would just add maybe 30% strength. It doesn't, it adds, it doubles the strength. One plus one doesn't equal two. One plus one equals three or more. Synergy is everywhere in nature, and it's observable. If you plant two plants close together, then the roots commingle and they improve the quality of the soil so that both plants will grow better than if they were separated. And if you observe plants and trees, they often grow together. If you put two pieces of wood together, they will hold much more than the total of the weight that can be held by each separately. And we understand this in the context of our homes. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. One plus one doesn't equal two. One plus one equals three or more. This is what Solomon's pointing to. And so he says in these verses, in verse 9, he says, two are better than one. Here's the reason. Because they have a good reward for their labor. There is a reward when we are together, not just in proximity to one another, but when there's synergy, when there's companionship, when there's love, when there's service toward one another. Labor has purpose. And God has given it to us. And many times in Ecclesiastes, Solomon talks about labor. And what we produce is better when we're working together. You know, I understand this in the context of, of, of church management because that's my world. That when our staff is working together, when we're synergized, when we're on the same page, when we're, when we're, when we're, when we're, 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 we're uh, in, in unity and, and collaborating together, we produce so much more than when each of us is working individually and alone. Uh, Elizabeth and I, have you ever tried to clean the kitchen by yourself and do the dishes? I haven't either, but they tell me it's really difficult. All right. You, you all are not responding to that. You're going to have to help me a little bit, okay? Okay, that laughter helps. You're, you know, you're in there and, you, and, you, and you're washing the dishes and you turn around. You know, it just feels like it takes forever. But when, when, uh, when your spouse is in the kitchen with you, doing the dishes, in the kitchen, when you're together and you're, and you're making a meal, the time passes so quickly. And it's, it's, dare I say, almost fun. There's a synergy to that. Church, workplace, home, our work is more rewarding and it's more fruitful when we share it with someone else. In verse 10, he says, For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. There's not just a reward for our labor, but there's help in togetherness. Life can be difficult. It is not uncommon for any of us to find ourselves in a place where we've just fallen down and we can't get back up. 
You know, we, we lose our temper. We respond poorly to someone. We get into financial difficulty, and it, and it makes us desperate. A relationship gets broken, and we don't know how to fix it. Our body begins to fall apart. Sin becomes a stumbling block. And in times of trouble, we are better for the presence of another. Alone, we might quit. Alone, we might stay down. And many do. Many fall out of church. Many turn their back on the Lord. Many uh, get discouraged beyond repair. But when another helps us up, sometimes, literally, through encouragement, through help, through support, through that note, gift card, those dollars, all those things, we are helped and we're able to get back up. And life is better. Verse 11, he says again, if two lie together, he says, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And the, the ideal is that there is warmth in togetherness. Two bodies create heat in a way that one cannot. And there is nothing sensual about this verse. This is practical insight into a world that didn't have thermostats and furnaces and where people were often stuck in a rugged environment trying to survive. And there is a broader principle here to which he is pointing that there is warmth in fellowship and there is warmth in connection. It is easy to get cold spiritually minus the input and connection from other people. But someone else comes along and they encourage you. Someone else challenges you. Someone else spurs you on. They, they send you that text message. They offer that word. They get in your face. They say you've been missed. If you've walked into the church foyer on a Sunday night at Eastland Baptist Church, you can hear and observe, if you step back for a moment, the warmth, the sound of fellowship, the sound of love. And for many that might stay home or, or be somewhere else, and I'm not talking about being on vacation or, or good reasons that we would have cause to miss. I'm just talking about a consistent basis. They're somewhere else. There is the absence of that warmth. When two are together, there's heat. And, 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 and when they are in isolation, there's, there's the absence of that heat. And it's why church is important. It's why online doesn't work. It's why the church means called out assembly. It's we're together. And as we're assembled, there's, there's a warmth there. There's a real tangible difference and help that we need from one another as we gather together. Verse 12, he says, And if one prevail against him, he says, Two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And the idea is simply that there is safety in togetherness. That's true in a dark street. There's safety in numbers. It's also true in spiritual life where sin and Satan work to consume us. And he takes all these thoughts and he's weaving these together. And he's making, I think... This could be said so many different ways, but for our purposes tonight in, in this principle, that God does much of His work in our lives through other people. God is working. It's how He works. He doesn't just work through a sermon. He does, but that's not all. He works through the presence of that preacher and His, his physical uh, presence. He works through the presence of those that surround you or in the auditorium with you. He works through those who surround you after church and, and before church and throughout life and in service toward together and in, in our homes and in our work environments. The problem is this. 
We live in an individualistic world. And the faith that many of us have been taught is one of individualism. It's, it's not just the culture. The culture gets into the church too. And so we've been taught this individualistic faith that says, all I need is Jesus and I don't need anything else. And that is a common theme in modern Christianity and it's one sometimes we ourselves are guilty of thinking. And the problem is this, we don't just need Jesus. We need Jesus and we need people because they go together and Jesus works through people in our lives and in our hearts. When we center a transaction between just us and the Lord, we're in trouble. We need others. Jesus, if you examine his life, he never seemed to have one-on-one conversations with any of his disciples. The conversations that seemed to be personal, they were always done in the company of others who were in a position to listen and to learn. See, God does his work in our lives through one another. And to miss out on relationships is to miss out on much of his working in us to make us the kind of people he wants us to be. And Solomon looks at this man's life and he says he is alone and there is not another with him. And this creates all sorts of problems. We make each other better. And if you're not close to people, you're missing out on the investment of God in your life. See, God uses people who mentor us, who help us see the big picture, who give us clarity, who stretch our minds, who will accompany us to the altar, who watch fireworks with us, who serve in the nursery, who celebrate milestones together like we will next Sunday, who listen and encourage our dreams, who protect us and share our tears. He uses people to rebuke us, to play with us, and to seek after God with us. Relationships are 100% absolutely inseparable from our spiritual health. We have to have them. And we subtract good from others when we back away from them or when we simply don't show up. So, so, so we, we think this, well, you know, I, I, I don't need all that, Brother Daniel, and, and I'm good. Okay, that may not be what the Lord thinks, but okay. But what about your involvement in the life of another? What about your togetherness with them? What about when they fall? Who's there to pick them up? Who, what, who's going to encourage their heart? Who's going to strengthen them? Who's going to stand together with them against the threats of life? Who's going to be there with them? And so I said, I don't need that and I'm good. Well, that's fine. You're not, and there's coming a day when you won't be. But you're subtracting yourself from the investment of others when God didn't design us to be that way. And we subtract good from other people when we back away from them. We subtract good when we simply don't show up. And, and, and I thought, you know, with Pastor's sermon this morning, we, we can't say you have to be in church, you know, three times a week or you're sinning against God. And that's evident from Acts 15. That would be legalistic for us to say that. Be pharisaical and say, like what the Sadducees were doing. Got it. But there are broader principles to which he spoke about of love and deference and encouragement. And this is one of those things. Say, well, I understand this principle, though. I don't have to be there every time to be saved and please the Lord. But there are people who need me. And I need to be there for them. And this is my church family. And if we're going to grow together in the Lord, we're going to have to do it together. Those who don't go to Sunday school, those who don't stick around after a service is over, slip right out the door to their car, 
without taking time to say hi to someone? Those who don't go to any activity, church or class ever? Look, we, and I'm speaking for myself too, we miss the investment of God through you. And who are you not investing in? Who's, who are you subtracting from? Because you didn't take the time to invest in them. And I don't want to spiritualize those activities again. I simply want us to understand that we miss being invested in and we miss investing in others and we limit the working of God. Meaningful life relationships only happen when we give thoughtful intention to them. They happen because we make them happen. When you focus on loving other people, you're going to be loved. He that hath friends, the Bible says, must show himself friendly. And not to overuse that verse, but we get so used to hearing that, we glance by it, and not to take it seriously is a grave mistake. It's not a verse to think lightly of. When you invest in other people, you yourself will be invested in. The generous soul, the Bible says, will be made fat. When we pour out to others, others pour back into us. Relationship requires investment. It requires time. Well, I'm too busy for other people. Busyness is a condition you create. Relationships have to be given prime time on our calendars. They can come before other things. We just have to be intentional. It requires energy. Well, I'm tired. We'll have some ruggedness about you, right? Both physical and emotional. They require resources. And again, when we invest, we're going to be invested in. Relationships must be moved to the top of our priority list just because we come to church and just because we sit through an hour of a service does not mean we have relationships. We need to be intentional about investing in other people, intentional about shaking their hand, intentional about asking them thoughtful questions, intentional about not just talking about ourselves, but listening and caring and showing concern and intentional in our prayer life, intentionally writing down other things that you know of people that, and families in this church that you're praying for, intentional as a dad to ask your children, what family in the church are we going to pray for tonight? That's not just for Pastor Darrell to do. That's for us to do, to love one another and to hold each other up before the throne of God, to make that kind of investment. And I, and I think, myself included, many of us, have given effort to relationships, but we fear being hurt. We fear being betrayed. We fear being turned against again. Because it's happened before. See, God designed us to be in close proximity to other people. But sometimes it's hard to let other people get close to us. Sometimes because we're busy, perhaps we don't like making ourselves vulnerable. And so like a window in our home, we have, we're here, we're present, but we pull the shade over our heart. We're just not going to let people get close to us, and we're not going to get close to them. One of my favorite quotes, and I've used this illustration, not this quote, but this illustration many times, from Basil Pennington. He said, we're broken persons. He said, we live in broken communities in a state of brokenness. We are alienated from ourselves and from each other. We do not readily fit together. And then he uses this word picture that I love so much. He says, we are like a bunch of porcupines trying to huddle together for warmth who are always driven apart out of fear of the wound we can inflict upon each other with our quills. 
Just think of two porcupines trying to get together. (laughs) And they're just poking each other. You know, this question comes to mind. Was Jesus disappointed by his disciples when they deserted him? Perhaps he was disappointed when Peter, his potentially best friend, denied him? The Apostle Paul wrote in a wistful moment in 2 Timothy chapter 4, At my first answer, no man stood with me. And then he says, but all men forsook me? Can you imagine that? Here's the point. Pain and disappointment are part of relationships. And we have to get over it. Say, well, I, you know, I was friends with that person and they hurt me. I think they talked about me. They weren't kind to me. They overlooked me. They were aggressive with me. Pain and disappointment are part of relationships. They were for Jesus. They were for Paul. They are for all of us. It is part of the human experience. But if God continually reaches out His hand for unfaithful people, like you and like me, and He does it because He wants an intimate relationship, isn't He making a point Himself? When He went back to Peter, when He forgave you of your sin, and continues to, anytime you come to Him, what's the point? We have to try and try and try again. You're going to fall. Do you have someone there who will help you get back up? People in this room are going to fall. Are you going to be there to help them get back up? Paul said his eyes were on the prize, but in the end he wasn't alone. And neither should you or I be. There's an author named Charles Simeon. He's a 19th century writer. And he wrote this. And I I love this quote. And I want to end with this. He said, I love to view all my Christian friends as fuel. I have gathered you all together at my hearth. I warm myself at your fire and find my Christian love burn and grow. You take away the Christian friend. You take away this man's fuel. You take away his warmth. You take away his growth. And that is so true for you and I as well. When we remove Christian relationships, when we remove ourselves from intimacy and closeness with other people, we are worse for it. The Bible is a book from beginning to end about relationship. Relationship to God, and not just God, but relationship to others. Jesus said, if you want to know if you're one of my disciples, he says, this is the mark. You have love one for, not he doesn't say God, he says you have love one for another. That's how you know. You're a disciple of Jesus, you're following him, you're doing right, then this is what you're going to do. Then you're going to be together. You're not going to be this guy who was alone and there was no second. You're, you're going to be a guy who is together with others in the presence of them, connecting with them, both being invested in and investing in them. Let me ask you to stand tonight if you would.